Our scripture reading for today is 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, to chapter 3, verse 10. Listen now to the word of the Lord. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident, who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Welcome. Um, Before I begin, I just want to remind you that uh, beginning today and for the next six Sundays, we are going to have our annual uh, Lenten FGs, and so I want to invite all of you to uh, please stick around for that. Um, I'm asking you to commit the next six weeks, an extra 45 minutes or so on Sundays to participate uh, in the FGs. Uh, After the service, we'll have lunch together. And then we're going to break up into six groups and study the Lord's Prayer uh, this year together. And uh, this year, we're going to do it a little bit differently in that we're going to have our groups with everyone, including the youth group and the uh, children as well. We want to demonstrate um, to the younger members of our congregation Something of what Lent is. Um, I didn't want them to think that Lent is when the adults go do Bible study and we watch a movie. And so uh, I want us to learn to pray together, to actually pray together, uh, demonstrate what a praying community looks like. 
And then hopefully some of the things that we learned together about prayer, uh, you can take it back to your homes and continue to practice uh, this Lenten discipline. So uh, again, I just want to invite you all of, all of you to, to join us uh, for that for the next six weeks. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for this day that you have made. And we ask again, uh, in the hearing of your word, help us to find our confidence in you and the strength to obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is now the fifth uh, in a series of sermons I'm preaching on the letters of John. And John has been reminding us that we have known from the very beginning that Jesus Christ is the eternal word of God made flesh. And in the first chapter, we were reminded that God is light. And John writes and proclaims this truth so that we may have fellowship with God and with one another, so that our mutual joy may be made complete, and so that we may not sin. In the second chapter, John offered us three assurances that we know this God. We know this God if we keep his commandments, if we love our brothers and sisters, and if we confess that Jesus is the Christ. And that brings us to our reading today. John opens this section by calling the members of the church little children and urging them to continue to abide in God. And then he goes on to say that God calls us the children of God because that is what we are. He writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. He's saying, can you you believe this? That God has called us his children? What kind of love? What sort of love? What manner of love is this? The word he uses there expresses great admiration and literally means of what country is this love? What foreign, what unearthly, what out of this world love is this? From what sort of realm does this come? Who can possibly explain this love of the Father that calls us his children? In the Gospel of John, we are told similarly, but to all who did receive Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God and God's will. This is such an incredible promise. I want to linger here for a bit on this truth. You are a child of God. Your identity is a settled reality established by the incomprehensible love of God made in Jesus Christ. God the Father, in his love, creates this new family. Anthropologists call these new family ties Fictive kinship, that is kinship, relationship, established by something other than blood and marriage. I know that because we live in this time and in this place, in 21st century America, it's far, it's very difficult for us to really understand and appreciate how radical and how valuable this is. Many of you grew up in Christian homes and you've had Christian friends throughout your life. 
It was normal for you to have these fictive kinships, these brothers and sisters in Christ. But for John's community and for many places in the world today, this is simply not the case. A few weeks ago, you may remember when missionary Lee was here from Kenya, he shared about how the vast majority of those who convert from Islam to Christianity, they get baptized, they make a profession of faith, and many of them return back to their nominal Islamic roots because of the family pressures are so great. It's very hard to be the only Christian in your family, in your town, to have no familial ties, to be completely cut off from all relational ties that you have known throughout your entire life. I remember having the same conversation uh, with um, Pastor uh, Sung uh, in Uzbekistan. He said the same thing, that almost everyone who becomes a Christian there returns at least once back to their Islamic faith. Not because of you know, um, intellectual doubt or anything like that, but because of the pressures of family. Some come back then to Christian faith, but many do not. Becoming a follower of Jesus Christ in many places in the world today, is incredibly, incredibly disruptive. It requires such a radical reorientation and and an utter transformation of all the sort of uh, social and moral codes that you have known your whole life. And it can create an ongoing trauma in your life. That's what it is to follow Christ. And so to have these kinds of kinships, For God to say, you are a child of God, to be included into this new family is absolutely vital. Last year, I know that uh, the women's group read Educated, uh, a memoir by Tara Westover. Uh, It's really an incredible story. It's about a woman who grew up in Idaho in a family of um, Mormons, but they were kind of a fringe group of Mormons. And she was taught, basically, that the world was about to end, And she spent significant portions of her childhood preparing for the end. She received no formal education because her father thought that schools were basically uh, places you'd go and you would be brainwashed into some sort of uh, liberal socialist uh, agenda. And so she spent most of her days working uh, in the junkyard with her father. But she was bright, she was curious. And so she snuck off to study for the ACTs on her own. She lied that she was homeschooled in her college application and was accepted into BYU. From there, she went on to study at places like Harvard and eventually got a doctorate from Cambridge. Very impressive. And in attending school, her entire worldview had to be reoriented. Almost everything she knew about the world was wrong and had to be relearned. It was an incredibly traumatic experience for her. And yet, despite all of her success, despite now having been educated, having learned that almost everything her father had told her was wrong, despite the fact that her brother was abusive and violent and repeatedly beat her, she continued to go back to her family time and time again. She found it almost impossible to sever or to untangle her family ties. It's hard to break away from your family. 
eventually one of the things that kind of gave her some uh, stability and, and to have some break with her family was a group of friends, these fictive kinships. It's hard to leave behind what you have known, your blood family. You love them despite all the harm that they may have caused you. And in the ancient world, blood ties meant everything. And so for anyone to suggest, as John does here, to insist that we are now the children of God and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ, this is essentially crazy talk. It makes no sense. Remember when Jesus' mother and brothers were trying to see him? Jesus barely acknowledged them and he said, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that is my mother. Those are my brothers and sisters. And people thought he was crazy. Even on the cross, he said to his mother and to his disciple, behold your son, behold your mother. In his death, he created this this new family. He called them to a new identity. Not based on blood, in us, but based on the blood he shed for us on the cross. And the Bible continues and and repeatedly uses these familial terms to remind us and to reassure us of this new reality. You are a child of God. You are a child of God because of God's unworldly love for us in Jesus Christ. And you know, God doesn't just call you that. It's a true statement. It's not just make-believe or pretend. You know that sometimes uh, parents lie to their children. I'm sorry to tell you this. Um, Maybe your son is starting to read and you tell him you're doing a great job. Those are very creative word choices you're making there, even though he's getting half the words wrong. Maybe your daughter daughter is uh, starting to play soccer and she's terrible at it, but you tell her, that was a great kick you had there, you know, great form. If you, if you had hit the ball, you, you, would, you would have scored next time, right? God isn't doing that. He's not just saying, hey, you're a child of God. He's not lying. He's not trying to encourage and cheer you up in some sort of false way. This is a truth. God says you are a child of God, and John goes on to say, because that is what you really are. That is what you really are. Just like we just sang, right? God, you're a good, good father. That's who I am. It's not just what I'm called. It's not just the label that I have. That, that's who I really am. You are a child of God. And then there's more. John goes on to say, yeah, you know, we're children now, but there's something even better that's waiting for us. What we will become is not yet known, but we know that we will be like Jesus. Calvin Miller says that we are not yet beings. We are not yet. We are under construction. We are unfinished beings. We are all in the process of becoming like Jesus. But right now, we are all unfinished in our own way. And it can be tempting to see others who are unfinished in their own way and ignore how unfinished you are in your own way. So maybe you see someone and maybe they're very stingy and don't have a spirit of generosity when it comes to money. And so you think, I'm a generous person, but that person lacks the spirit. And so you might think, well, they're not 
growing very much. They're not a very good Christian. Maybe they're not a child of God. But maybe you lack patience and you are easily angered. And so they'll think the same thing about you and judge you. It's very easy to get into a mode of uh, self-righteousness. But Jesus warns us to take the log out of our own eye before pointing out the speck in others' eyes. Pray for the spirit in others, but pray more humbly for your own inner transformation. We are all not yet beings. It means that like children, we're still immature, prone to make mistakes. We see now through a glass darkly. But when Jesus comes, here's the assurance. When the time is fulfilled, our identity as the children of God will be fully formed in us. But it's going to take time. It may be difficult along the way. You may get discouraged by your own slow progress and the slower progress of those you see around you. But John says this is our future hope. This is the truth that gives us hope when we see the brokenness in ourselves and in the world. Rather than trusting your own sort of experiences, your own sort of sense of righteousness, and being disappointed and despairing of others and yourself, you choose instead to cling to this hope, this promise, that in the future, we will be like Jesus. Every one of us, the children of God. So it's from this fact, it's from this truth, from this promise, this new identity, this new reality, that leads us then to a particular way of living. Because you are a child of God, it means now that you will walk in the light, that you will seek purity, that you will pursue righteousness, that you will avoid sin. You are not what you will be yet, but that future reality, that gives you the motivation. It helps to shape and to transform who you are now and how you live now. Because you are a child of God, John says, your life cannot look like those of the children of the devil. You know, as you know, John likes to make these very, very stark either-or statements. It's either hot or cold. There's, no, there's nothing in between for John. It's either light or darkness. It's kind of an absolute separation, truth and lie. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. There's nothing in between. And the way he says you can tell the difference between these two children is that the children of God do righteousness while the children of the devil do sin. And so since God is righteous, as the children of God, we also must be righteous. Otherwise, there can be no fellowship with God. As children, we follow our Father. In John 8, when Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees about God and the Father, the Pharisees claim that both Abraham and God were their father. And Jesus tells them, no, that's not true. He says that if God were your father, if Abraham were your father, then you would have listened to me because I come from the Father. And you would do as God does. You would act righteously. But they didn't. Your actions prove that you are not of the Father, he said. And so Jesus went on to say, you are the children of the devil. Because the devil has been a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. And your actions, your actions show that you are his children. 
Jesus is pointing out there the truism that children act like their parents. Being born of God, being a child of God, places you in a particular family and a particular ethic. Being a child of God means that your actions have to have some resemblance to the Father. You know, when a baby is born, one of the first questions that gets asked is, who does she look like? Right? You look at the child, you go, well, she has my eyes, she has her mother's nose. Um, And some children, they look more like their parents than others. But it goes beyond just sort of the physical characteristics. The resemblance goes down to mannerisms, likes, and dislikes. And again, I'm sorry to tell you these uh, young people, but you become more like your parents as you grow older, more than you want or you want to admit. That's what John is saying here. We do things in this family in this way. And so if you know God, if you are of God, then you're going to resemble God in some way. In the family of God, we do righteousness. We love one another because that's what God does. That's who God is. In God's family, we do righteousness. It, it doesn't mean that we, you know, we're going to try to live a, you know, a moderately good and decent life. No, it, it means to do righteousness means to love one another as God loves. There's an aspect of this in which you are trying to imitate God, but that's not really the emphasis here. It's not about you know, trying harder to be good. Really, it's, John is telling us, this is your DNA. This is your core nature. If you are born of God, this is who you are. It comes from your very being. And John goes on to say in verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And even more strongly in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning for God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning. He cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This makes sense. Those who are in the family of God, those who are born of God and and God is righteous, there is no sin in God, you cannot sin because that is not a part of of who you are, because that is not a part of who God is. You cannot, as the child of God, continue to walk in darkness and in sin. <clears throat> now, I wish I had read these verses in this translation when I was younger. But the translations that I grew up with um, offer a simpler and a far more difficult translation. The King James Version and the NRSV, for example, translate verse 6 as, No one who abides in him sins. No one who abides in him sins. Not that you don't keep on sinning, but you don't sin at all. And then, verse 9, He cannot sin because he is born of God. Not he cannot keep on sinning, but simply he cannot sin because he is born of God. That's hard, right? That, that's going to create all kinds of doubt in your head. Well, you know, I do occasionally sin. Am I not born of God? Am I not God's child? It, it's not true of our experiences, and it 
contradicts directly what John said earlier in chapter 1. Remember in chapter 1 he said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. In chapter 1, he argued against those who claim to be sinless. And now he seems to say that if you're a child of God, you can't sin. I know that some in the uh, Wesleyan uh, perfectionism tradition, or things like the, the, the Keswick holiness movement and others, they have used verses like this to argue that sinlessness is possible after conversion. But there are just too many passages in the scripture that argue against that line of thinking. Until we are resurrected, we cannot be perfected. But more simply, can anyone honestly say that they have no sin? To make that claim, isn't that a sin? I mean, I think it's possible for you to look like you don't have sin, like to not do outward actions that are you know, evil or sinful necessarily. But can anyone really say they, they don't have any sinful thoughts at all, ever? Even John Wesley, for whom the Christian perfection was a possibility, he preached on this text and he acknowledged from the very start of his sermon, it is plain, in fact, that those whom we cannot deny to have been truly born of God, and he's thinking here of you know, the, the great... Uh, exemplars of the faith in scriptures. He says, even those folks, nevertheless, not only could, but did commit sin, even gross outward sin. And so for Wesley and others uh, in, in the perfection tradition, they argue that, okay, Christians can and do sin, but if they are abiding in Christ in those moments, one does not and cannot sin. So as long as you're remaining fully in Christ and abiding in him, you need not and you cannot sin. Now again, maybe that works somehow in theory, but I know, at least in my own life, and in everyone that I know about, you cannot fully abide in Christ all the time. As human beings, it's just, it's just, it's just not possible. We strive for that, We exhort one another, encourage one another to strive for that. But it's not possible while we have these bodies. And so the uh, English, the ESV that you just heard, and translations like the NIV, they try to harmonize this, these differences between what John says in chapter 1 about we have to admit we have sin, and this verse, which seems to suggest you cannot sin, uh, by noting the differences in the verb tense, and they stretch it here in chapter 3 to say that that one who has been born of God cannot keep on sinning, that is, cannot habitually or have a disposition or orientation towards sin. So while the Christian does commit acts of sin on occasion for which there is confession and forgiveness available, the Christian cannot, does not, habitually or have this kind of orientation or living in constant sin. And that is one way of trying to understand and interpret these verses, but it is a bit of a stretch grammatically. Um, I've looked at this a really long time. I've really struggled with this. And 
there really isn't a good way or a simple way to reconcile this. On the one hand, John has insisted against the false claim of being sinless. He has written to reassure us, in fact, that when we do sin, we can confess sin and have the confidence of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And that is what allows us to continue to walk in the light and to have fellowship. That's our common experience. At the same time, on the other hand, John insists that as the children of God, as those born of God and in whom the Spirit lives, we cannot sin. We cannot sin or we cannot continue to be in sin because we have this new reality, this new identity. And if we are walking in the light, there can be no darkness at all. So perhaps John is trying to call us toward a new reality, an idea, while at the same time recognizing the practicality of daily living and the sins that surround us in this world. I think what John is doing here may be trying to get at something very, very fundamental about the way he understands the world and our identity. It's another one of his either-or choices. I think it's something like what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. In Mere Christianity, Lewis lays out the the case for um, the Christian faith And in in a section where he's talking about um, sanctification, he says this. God became man to turn creatures into sons. Not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Isn't that good? Right? A lot of us think about, you know, I want to be a Christian so I can be a little better. You know, I've had people come to church and say, you know, we want to bring our kids to church so they can go to Sunday school so they can, you know, be a little better. You know, get some morals. Um, listen to their parents a little better, something like that. Maybe sin a little bit less. But as Lewis and as, think, and as I think John is trying to tell us, God's work of sanctification is absolute. It's not this sort of I want you to be a little bit better. I want you to be a better human being. No, you are my son. Your very nature is fundamentally changed. I think that's what John is getting at here. He's talking about an absolute sanctification and transformation. The children of God are not those who try a little harder or are made a little bit better. We are children of God. We were the children of the devil. We were the children of wrath. But now, in Christ... We are reborn, born anew, born from above as the children of God. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, right? It's it's an absolute switch. I think it's in that sense, as the children of God, we cannot sin. Sin is not just, you know, um, doing something wrong or disobeying some rules. It's doing something wrong and disobeying God. It's a rupture in the relationship that we have with the Father. It undoes the work of Christ who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, he, he, it wasn't merely to forgive our sins, but to take them away, to remove them from our reality. He came to destroy the work of the devil, the works of unrighteousness. 
And we remind that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, but he also cleanses us from all sin. He makes us altogether different. There can be no mixture of sin and darkness with the Father. We cannot sin because we've been born of God and because God's seed, God's word, God's spirit resides and abides in us. Those who are in him, therefore, cannot sin, cannot do sin because it is no longer part of our nature of who we are. You know, I I love the phrasing that John uses here. He says, you as the children of God, we do righteousness. We don't do sin. Uh, and earlier in chapter one, he talked about we do the truth. This idea of doing. Um, years ago, you may remember, um, there was this phrase, um, I don't do windows. Do you remember anybody? Um, for you younger folks, um, it doesn't mean that you only use Apple's operating system. In ancient times, like maybe in the 60s, um, when people would um, look for employment to like clean homes, for example, and they would be asked, like, what are the jobs, you know, what kind of work are you willing to do? And they would say, well, I can cook, I'll clean, I'll vacuum, but I don't do windows. Right? Like, that was the limit. Like, I'll do all these other things, and here's what I'm willing to do because I'm your employee, but here's what I'm not going to do. I don't do windows. And um, that wording um, then kind of took on this sort of uh, more broader use. So people started using the word I don't do to talk about you know, all kinds of different things, right? Like um, I don't do brunch or um, I don't do sarcasm, <laughs> sarcastically, right? Um, the children of God don't do sin. We just don't do it because that is not who we are. As the children of God, we don't do unrighteousness. That's not who we are. We do righteousness. We do love. We do the truth. Because that's who we are. Now, again, I want to tell you that all of this is not to worry you or to create anxiety, to make you worry, am I a child of God? Am I a child of the devil? You are a child of God. The whole point of John's writing is to reassure you of that. You are a child of God. You can have confidence and live in that confidence. What John is really concerned about in this letter, it's not the question of, you know, how can I be saved? How can I have eternal life? How how do I know if I'm a Christian? Like, how do I become a Christian? It's not a, the question for him is not how do I become a Christian. It's really you are a Christian and here's how you can know and have confidence that you are a Christian. He's trying to reassure those who are already in Christ to have the assurance, the confidence, because there are others who are trying to create doubt and uncertainty in their lives. You are a child of God. You are born of God. In fact, later in this letter, in chapter 5, verse 13, there's a verse that you ought to commit to memory if you haven't already. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have life. So that you may know you have eternal life. Not that you you may think 
you might be 65% sure, but that you may know, that have the absolute confidence you have eternal life because you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God has declared you, you are my child. He has made you his child. That you may know. And and it's in knowing this truth that then you can live in the way of peace and righteousness, to do righteousness, to do love, and to avoid sin and unrighteousness. You know, when I was in high school and college, um, sometimes people would try to scare me uh, into the faith. <clears throat> they would ask questions like, you know, if you were to die today, do you know where you would go? Or, are you ready to meet your maker? Right? And, and of course, as, as a young Christian, um, I wasn't always sure. I had my doubts. I wasn't sure if I was ready to meet my maker. It depended on the day. You know, if, if that day, I started the day with a good quiet time, I had prayed, I was nice to my, you know, sisters or my friends. Then I felt like, yeah, I feel pretty good. I, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to meet my maker today. But then on other days, you know, maybe, you know, things weren't going so good. Then I might feel like, well, no, you know, I don't want to meet my maker today. Maybe next week, you know, give me a week to kind of, kind of get better. There was always this sort of level of anxiety that these kinds of questions confronted me with. And it was because... That question, you know, are you ready to meet your maker? Do you know where you're going? Right? What comes to mind is this like, I got to face the judge. I got to give an account of my life. And and that can be a very frightening thing. Right? Because, you know, you know that you haven't lived in, in the way that maybe you should have. But if you think of God that way, you're always going to have that level of anxiety. But what if... Instead, you thought of God as your father. And you are a child. You are his child. Even if your father is on the Supreme Court, you can go to him as your father. It's not scary. No matter what the world may think, for you, that's your father. There's no fear. There's no anxiety. You know, I think for me, that's why I have far more confidence than I did when I was younger. It's not because I've been any better in the practice of my spiritual disciplines. It's not because I have, you know, less sin in my life now than before. In fact, I can tell you, I'm far more aware of my sins today than I was when I was younger. But over the years, I'd like to believe that I've come to know the Father better and have come to trust His Word a little better. So if someone were to ask me that question now, you know, I would answer in the way that someone else has answered. Yeah, I'm ready to meet my maker because I meet with my maker every day. I'm meeting with him right now. I walk with him every day, daily. There's no fear because it's like you're playing and now I'm going to go home to the Father. I'm going home. If you know that this is your Father and that you are a child, There is no fear. There is no anxiety. And that's what I think John is trying to do. He's trying to give us signs to reassure us. Here's how you you can have confidence that you are a child of God. You obey his commandments. You love one another. You confess your sins. You proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. You do righteousness. You do the truth.
I know that in this age of um, relativism, that it's politically very incorrect to assert any sort of absolute proposition of truth, especially one that can be misunderstood as arrogance and try, you know, kind of a false triumphalism in, in Jesus Christ. But John is telling us, yeah, you can have this confidence. You don't have to, you know, have this kind of doubt and wavering. You don't have to live with anxiety about your salvation. Not because of any confidence you have in your own works, but because God is your Father, and He has loved you, and He has declared you, and has made you His child. Let me remind you of that again. You have a birth certificate in your baptism that you are a child of God, both now and forever. That's who you are. That's who you are. Say it with me now. I am a child of God. Let's pray. Lord, what kind of love have you given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Help us to believe this word, to really believe this word, and in believing, to live in a way that reflects that truth, to live our lives resembling you, to live in accordance with your family rules, to do righteousness, to do truth, to do love. And help us to walk in the confident reassurance of your love and of our salvation. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.